Made Visible is a podcast that gives a voice to people with invisible illnesses. There's no blueprint about how to live with an invisible illness or how to be there for someone who has one. We're here to help people feel less alone as they strive to create a normal life and to create an awareness of how we can be supportive of people who seem fine but aren't. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so glad you tuned in today. This episode is brought to you by Lesser Evil. Lesser Evil is a healthy popcorn that I'm absolutely obsessed with. Today's guest is someone I connected with because he's the host of Coffee and Flowers, a podcast about the band The National, one of my favorites. Christopher Hooten shared with me that he has somewhat treatment-resistant depression, and I wanted to learn more about this and how he manages it. So, welcome, Christopher. Hey, Harper. So happy to have you here. Yeah, delighted to be here. How you doing? I'm good. Where are you calling in from? I'm just sat uh, at my window in my bedroom in London at the moment. Lovely. Nice day, I hope. Uh, just uh, kind of as much as it ever is in London, really. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So let's dive right in. Tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what you do. Yeah, so I'm kind of born and raised Londoner, really. Um, I was a film and TV critic for the best part of a decade, and then I kind of quit that very recently to sort of uh, pursue podcasts in a way, just because they seem like a kind of more of a a healthy future for journalism right now, Um, and then also to try and kind of do some film and TV making as well, because that's really kind of where my passion lies. Rather than writing about it, to actually be doing is the is the goal at the moment. Got it. Love it. It, it reminds me of uh, doing event production as I did before I started my business a few years ago, where I was doing the behind the scenes work and then going like, I want to be part of the action. Yeah. Also, I just think you're kind of, you're a bit of a charlatan if you think it's okay for you to pass comment on creative works but you if you don't have an interest in also trying to make them it seems illogical to me somehow I appreciate that I do so we'll definitely get into the podcast that you're working on later in the show sure. but let's dig right in when did you first experience symptoms of depression I guess I mean I, I had a very like blessed childhood um so I, I I think I was fine growing up I was I guess I was maybe somewhat sort of slightly emotional volatile emotionally volatile but not in a no I wasn't I was I was I was fine very on the level and then I suppose when I went to university um that was when I started to it started to things started to go off the rails a little bit just kind of reaching maturity I think really what does off the rails mean I guess I suppose that was when I started properly having like proper relationships um and then when they went south Whereas that for a lot of people, it would just, you know, that's a, a thing that sucks, really sucks for everyone. But then you kind of get over it. For me, it would just be like, damn, that's like just knocked me out of the park. Uh, I feel like I can't recover from it. So that was the kind of the first signs that maybe I wasn't reacting to things as normally as other people. Um, and then I guess from, yeah, from about that age, kind of 18, 19, 20, 21 is when I started to feel also kind of a, a more ambient sense of depression I suppose that then sort of stuck around and soon became a thing that I was like okay this is something I'm gonna have to deal with at all times. And what would you say those symptoms were like what were you feeling? I mean it's always yeah there was like two aspects to me this is one is that all the kind of various trials and tribulations of life that happen whether they're work-based or to do with your friendships or to do with relationships 
whereas they're just for other people they're kind of slightly knock you off course yeah for me they was just it was would just send me into a deeper depression it was like the bar was kind of way lower for me in terms or higher rather in terms of what would set me off and then the other aspect is this kind of it's so hard to put into words even though it's feel like that's all I've been trying to do the past 10 years really but it's without going into cliches but it's just it is a sort of sense of dissatisfaction and feeling kind of just yeah finding it hard to get to a level where you're like okay this is where I need to be this is where I feel happy and comfortable it's interesting because when I think about you know university years college years I think it's a time where we often are trying to fit in in such a major way did you feel that different from your friends yeah yeah I mean university was a a weird time for me I think I initially kind of you know you you got you put into the situation that you you don't realize that you never are again in life like if you did this as an adult it would be kind of bizarre but you're suddenly just in the middle of nowhere with a whole group of new people and I think I sort of freaked out and immediately latched on to a group of people that maybe weren't actually that much like me and we'd just go out and get drunk and do the usual college stuff and then about a kind of a a, a term in I had this moment of like oh wait this isn't actually me I'm not like these people at all and just sort of that was a a weird moment and then I think that's when I kind of I dropped out and I spent a while just kind of squirreled away in my room probably doing too many drugs and not really focusing on my uh my work and yeah there's definitely a, a very a feeling of kind of disorientation um and feeling separate somehow I guess from everyone else so at what point did you get diagnosed with depression and sort of recognize that something needed to change? I think um, there was a, a bad breakup. I guess it must have been when I was 21, 22. And the relationship actually really had been over for a long time. It was one of those sort of things where but I, I think in my head I hadn't processed that. So when I eventually did realize that, yeah, this is done, There's, this is not something that we're going to come back from, it just put me into a really dark place to to a point of, suicidal ideation and stuff and I think it was at that point where I was like okay I think I had this thing as well when I was young that because I'd lived such a charmed life I've such a so fortunate to you know I've had a good upbringing always been you know comfortably middle class had amazing parents and siblings and friends I think I denied myself a diagnosis for a long time because I was just like well you can't be there can't be anything wrong with you because there's no reason for you to be there's no you know repressed feelings or anything so it took me until that point I guess of hitting somewhat rock bottom to be like okay be that as it may all those circumstances clearly something is not right with you Um, and that's when I went down to uh, see my doctor and that was when we kind of was first diagnosed and we first started to look at what to do. Given that you had a good childhood and clearly a good relationship with your family had you discussed this with them when you were in college? No I just (laughs) I just hit it massively. Um, From everyone? Yeah, I mean, not so much from friends, but I think more from from family, just because of that feeling of like they've done everything right possible, given me every chance in life, not been there for me if I need them, kind of feeling a real strong sense of, I think, guilt about trying to explain to them and to people who clearly don't exhibit as depressed at all, so would maybe struggle to understand being, you know, trying to get their head around the fact that uh, I don't feel okay. Yeah, that's got to be hard, especially when you look around at your surroundings and go, okay, I've got this great family, like, why am I feeling these things, but also recognizing that you can't force yourself not to feel them. 
and something needed to change. So what happened when you went to your doctor? Yeah, I mean, well, the first thing he said, actually, that like kind of stunned me, because I, I immediately kind of like just blurted out all this stuff about how I have no right to feel this way, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera, um, and talked about my home life. And he said, I, I don't, he said, like, you know, the fact that you grew up in a a loving place, but like a somewhat emotionless place in the sense that, you know, there were, there were never arguments, there were never fights, I never witnessed any of that stuff. My parents are together, everything was just okay all the time. And obviously that is so 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 good and I'm so lucky but I think being in that environment meant that I wasn't really prepared for the world you know it's like all these things that happen to your life these like repeat small wounds they you know they make you stronger don't they they you get the scars and then you heal from them and I think not not having that as great as that is um, meant that when these things did hit me I was like wow I don't know how to deal with this I'm just gonna spiral kind of thing so that was one of the first things he said to me which I don't necessarily see as like the, the, you know the answer to the whole thing but um was interesting it's definitely an interesting concept i mean yeah. it's making my own relationship with myself and with my family is similar to you i had a really great upbringing and amazing family and amazing friends but i think about that same sort of time period of college of just being so lost and confused and not sure is this what everyone else is feeling is this just me and am i allowed to feel this when my life quote unquote, should be good. Yeah. And I can say that, you know, even in my 30s, I've had those moments of, you know, I've got a business, I host a podcast, I live in New York, like, life, quote unquote, should be phenomenal. Why do I feel this way? Yeah, and I think that ties into, you know, there's a lot of talk at the moment about how maybe kids are now more kind of wrapped in bubble wrap than they were growing up, if, uh, you know, in the, in the yeah. 70s or 80s or whatever. And I kind of I'm not a parent myself you know I completely understand that impulse to want to make everything as you know good as possible and keep them away from danger but <laughs> it does seem to chime with you know this idea that if you are too coddled in a way if you don't you know have to go out into the world and deal with these issues how can you ever really be prepared for it later in life you know yeah absolutely and I think you know growing up in New York for me and London for you we're in places where we're often exposed to a lot more than many other places in the world uh, and so many different cultures and types of people, but there's still ways that we can be coddled in a way that, you know, isn't necessarily beneficial. So you go to this doctor and does he immediately diagnose you with depression? Does he say, start taking drugs? I mean, how did that go down? Yeah, I, I was quite surprised in a way how he he seemed to, <laughs> he must have just, I don't know, picked up on how serious it seemed and immediately wanted to, I think, I think I was immediately given um, diazepam to just kind of like deal with the, the crushing despair initially. And then I soon started on citalopram. I forget what the, the kind of uh, brand name is in the, in the States or over here. Um, started to get established on that, but then experienced some side effects as is like, often the case uh, with with SSRIs and antidepressants. Um, so came back off those because it didn't feel like long term. I didn't want to risk, you know, health. Um, it was kind of suggested some therapy and started doing that and just kind of found the, the actual, the hour of time that you spend with someone talking is useful, is like a load off in the, in a, in the way that, you know, you can, talk you can and I do talk to friends but you know with this person that they literally have all their time for you they don't have somewhere to be and it can just be an out you know interrupted time of being able to be 
really fucking narcissistic and talk about yourself as weird as yeah. it is um but yeah feeling that like that was good but then once I came out of the you know the room and went about my day that like it really hadn't made much difference um and this was private as well so after I think I'd done six weeks of that I was like well I can't really afford to keep doing this I haven't really seen much results so then I kind of stopped doing that as well so when you chose to go to the doctor were you looking for answers were you looking for some sort of relief and that's where therapy and the medication came in but you found that it was not for you yeah I've always been just completely open to anything like if if someone said if you like cut off your thumb right now you'll feel better and look here's a million studies that prove that this would be the case I would do it you know like I'm don't cut off your thumb <laughs> I'm not going to don't worry but if it was <laughs> there was a science and it was peer-reviewed I'd consider it yeah. but um yeah. So yeah, I was always just open to try anything. And I, I always amazes me when people, you know, say, they, they tell you how bad they're feeling, but they say, Oh, but I don't want to, you know, I don't want to try medication. I'm kind of like, why, why on earth wouldn't you? Surely you would try anything to not feel like you do. So I wasn't going to particularly looking for one or any kind of treatment, but was definitely open to all of that. Yeah. And what's interesting is when you and I first connected, one of the first things you told me was that you've become somewhat treatment resistant. Can you talk more about this and what that means? Yeah. So, I mean, it's weird with, I mean, this, uh, and I guess this is a case for a lot of um, invisible illnesses is, you know, there are a lot of conditions for which people either say here is the cure or there is no cure, but with mental health and particularly with depression, there's this kind of weird gray area where, they say, well, we'll get you into therapy and we'll get you onto this medication. And it's kind of sold to you almost like it is a cure, but there's really no, you know, the kind of the literature in it on it and the, and the data. Yes, it does seem to help people, but it's by no means a cure. So yeah, I think the way, the way we talk about it is weird. And I, obviously I would never want to like dissuade anyone from trying all these things and everything should be tried. But I think you kind of have to also be prepared for the fact that therapy might not you know just be the a, a panacea you know um and that also finding the right cocktail of drugs if there even is one um of medication is is quite difficult and takes quite a long time too i mean those are the two clear main recommended treatments um i feel like i've tried them both and there's been some success to both of them but not really uh, in a meaningful way so um i'm you know i, I turn to more non-traditional <laughs> things and just continue to try and yeah find anything in life that might help really so what are those non-traditional things that support you I guess like everything from you know in terms of just I just rampantly read any kind of literature and philosophy and whatever I can to try and you know find any answers or experimented with like drugs in a responsible way things like microdosing um trying those and you know trying to trying to think in different ways thinking about careerism you know we all we're also kind of enwrapped by struggle and competition in life at the moment and trying to orientate myself to not be kind of think about life so much in those terms maybe helps somewhat yeah and just i think trying to get to a place of um not taking things for granted seems super important even though it's just a very very difficult thing to do yeah, absolutely. And so therapy is not something that you're doing currently. No, I'm going to try again very shortly, actually starting 
next week because you know there are obviously a lot of different kinds so i haven't exhausted all the different options yet but um definitely looking outside of that as well have you heard of the self space in london no so when i was there for the festival that you and i were talking about before we started recording mm. i walked around shoreditch and there's this amazing little storefront looking place called the self space and i actually had the founder on the show uh, Jody Carice. I highly recommend listening to the episode because she basically is trying to destigmatize mental health and therapy. And she's got this really cute, pretty looking place that's a therapy office. And it's really welcoming and inviting. It's basically on a strip of a hair salon, a nail salon, and a therapy office. And I just think it's absolutely brilliant idea because there are so many stigmas around therapy and her goal is to really destigmatize it. Yeah. I mean, I fortunately, it's I think on boundary street. Right. Okay. Or oh, is it like a charity thing or is it private? No, or just... no, it's a for-profit business. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I feel, I feel like fortunately we're, we're making such leaps and bounds with, with stigma at the moment. I guess we haven't quite figured out the financial element to it. You know, we're, really yeah, fortunate in the UK that you can still get access to mental health services through the NHS even though it's somewhat difficult and takes some time that, but you can but um you can know. you explain that a little bit more I'm not familiar with that so in the UK essentially you just you speak to your doctor and then they refer you to a mental health service and then I think it's basically kind of triaged in terms of the severity and then depending on how severe it is you will get a call back from a therapy center and they will book you in um which is a great thing you know and, and people complain about the nhs because things take time and they're not perfect and usually the facilities are all crumbling and bad but you know what like <laughs> those let those things be the way they are because to be able to access those things for free is just means everything you know to someone who's struggling regardless of what their health is Absolutely. And it's like anything else to your point about anything related to health, that there should be a barrier to getting good health care because of finances. It's just, just yeah, yeah, it's just crazy to me. You know, it's like, it doesn't matter whether whether it's a, a physical problem or a mental problem, like those are the times in your life when you are just so kind of you just need help to be readily available. And the idea of having to think about money in those times is just is crazy. It's sickening to me. Yeah. Yeah. So. I, was, I was seeing a therapist last year and before I started working with her, insurance said that I had to hit a certain deductible in order to get reimbursement and blah, blah, blah. And I thought that I had hit the deductible and then found out that I didn't. And it was just thousands of dollars out of pocket. Yeah. And it, it's so frustrating because I'm like, okay, I'm really glad I did that. It was definitely valuable for me. But how can this possibly not be covered by insurance? Like, how is there not some sort of loophole here to get through? It's ridiculous. And yeah, and, and also if you're, if you are paying for it, it kind of comes to the detriment of the treatment in a way with something like that, because, you know, I mean, okay, okay. So, you know, we over here, we pay for the National Health Service through taxes, but it doesn't feel like you're paying, obviously. And that means that when you do access these things, you can kind of relax and, you know, go there with them. Whereas, <laughs> if it's a really expensive thing you're paying for you're sitting there talking to someone thinking about the kind of like the the pounds or the dollars that are racking up as you're doing this and it feels kind of a, like a more strange you know, kind of financial exchange um which is not ideal really 
Totally. And I, I think there's two versions of that. One is like, I better use this time and make it really valuable because it's got to be worth yeah. every penny of mine. And on the flip side, it's like, this is ridiculous. I can't even believe I'm here. You know, this is so frustrating. So it's a wild thing. But I think the bottom line is, and it's been a topic on the podcast many, many times of the value of therapy, whether it's short term or long term, and finding the person that's right for you. It's just huge. Yeah. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Lesser Evil. Lesser Evil was born from a desire to make sinfully tasty snacks with clean, sustainable ingredients. At their factory in Danbury, Connecticut, they control every single thing that goes into their products. Their family of snacks includes Buddha Bowl popcorn, Paleo Puffs, and Green Elephant Chips. I am absolutely obsessed with their Buddha Bowl Himalayan sea salt popcorn, like legit obsessed. It's absolutely delicious and feeds my popcorn craving every single time. I'm really mindful of taking care of my body to maintain my health, and I love knowing that Lesser Evil snacks are good for me. To try Lesser Evil's amazing snacks for yourself, go to lesserevil.com and use promo code MADEVISIBLE for 20% off your order. That's lesserevil.com, promo code MADEVISIBLE for 20% off. And now back to the show. So you mentioned to me that there's a disconnect between how people perceive you and how you feel, which is something I assume many people with mental health challenges face. What's that been like for you? And when do you decide how and when to share with someone how you're feeling and what you're dealing with? It's hopefully quite well known now that someone who's depressed doesn't always exhibit by, you know, crying and looking really anguished and all these kind of cartoonish images. Um, Also, partly, I mean, the medication I'm on at the moment, I have this weird thing where I can't really cry at all anymore. Mm. And so I definitely don't exhibit in that obvious way. So it's that disconnect between looking okay, still, you know, in a social situation, being able to laugh and have an interesting conversation and have things to say but all those things notwithstanding you might still be feeling really bad inside so that's a kind of a difficult thing to negotiate it's a really common thing in the chronic illness and visible illness world and i remember recording episodes early on and listening to people talk about mental illness and go okay i've never experienced mental illness or can't relate on the term mental illness but when people talk about it this way it's so so relatable in the sense that I have an invisible illness and walking down the street, you wouldn't know that I'm dealing with this. And Mm. if I'm with friends, I don't look sick, even if I feel sick. Yeah. And it's also difficult in terms of like, I I completely appreciate it from the other person's point of view as well. And when people I know are dealing with, you know, invisible illnesses, and I try and be there for them, I don't know the right, (laughs) the right way either, even if it's they're in a situation very similar to mine. So it's tricky. And I think, you know, people were really well-meaning and everyone wants to do the right thing. And they kind of say the usual stuff like, I'm here for you. Do you want to talk? Do you want to just watch a movie or something? And also, I think people tend to assume that these things work in sort of cycles or periods. So they kind of are like, okay, this person's clearly feeling down now. And then they sort of check in in a few days. And because you don't often want to be like, (laughs) feeling like you're too much of a burden, you know, after the five days, you're like, yeah, thanks. Yeah, doing a bit better now. Yeah. That's like a a common thing, I think, whereas often it's way more up and down than that. It it can literally be, it feels like the world is ending and crumbling beneath you one minute and four hours later, literally sometimes you could be fine and then it could flip back again. So it's way more fragmented and tricky to 
to talk about, I think. And for people to know when is the time when you need some help and when is the time when you're okay and you just you, they can just be normal. <laughs> yeah, so how and when do you decide to tell people what you're going through or even ask for help if you feel like you need help? Yeah, I mean, I think... Fortunately, I'm I'm pretty good at that. I'm not someone who tends to to bottle these things up. You let yourself do that for the first 19 years of your life. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's just probably my own shit with my family, but certainly with friends, I think I feel quite comfortable talking about stuff. But not that I necessarily always want to, you know. Sometimes that's not necessarily the right thing to do, you know. It's it's weird trying to find this line um now between obviously not trying to hide what you're dealing with but then we do live in a, a world where people share so much and also not wanting to be someone who's kind of posting 10 Instagram stories a day about <laughs> how they're feeling you know yeah absolutely so have there been instances where you felt like you had to tell people what you were going through given this scenario yeah I think that there are those moments where it's particularly bad and you you know you kind of have to just come out with it and there is something about doing that regardless of you know of what they say that just is helpful is cathartic just literally saying those words what do you find is the most helpful for you to get in response to sort of sharing and exposing yourself in terms of their response yeah I don't know I mean this is why I find it so difficult when I'm on the I feel like I should have the answer when I'm on the other side of it as I frequently am you know trying to help other people and it's it is difficult I mean you do have to just listen. Um, I think people relating it to their own experiences helps, you know, because most people have a frame of reference, even if they're not struggling in the way you are, but have felt like that at some point in their life and can relate it back to them. Um, yeah, it's, it's tricky. So what role does depression and mental health play in your creativity and the work that you do? Yeah, I mean, to me, it's just, it's everything really. Like I've always been a believer that all art is pain in some way, shape or form, with like very few exceptions. You know, comedy mostly is based around pain in some way, drama. So I think if you can't locate pain and you're not in touch with those emotions, it must be incredibly hard to make art, I think. So <laughs> I've been dealt this shitty hand in terms of the chemical levels in my brain. Um, I think it helps me to be a better writer, um, whether it's journalism or or scripts or prose or whatever it is um not that that's uh you know if I could trade it and be someone that has no creative drive whatsoever no ambitions to make anything but be happy I would choose that in a heartbeat but um the situation as it is I just try and use it the best I can um and I think there is a real intersection there like I've even noticed that sometimes you're better at creating art when you're in a place of great pain and sometimes that when you are in a good spot the feelings for me anyway aren't always as accessible when did you realize that i think quite early on i mean when i've been covering film and music and television kind of journalistically i've always just been thinking about it it's always a very personal thing to me and i end up doing it in quite a first person way and i think i always just want to talk about how these things make you feel and and for the people involved as well how it makes them feel you know to have created this thing and why did they want to do it and did it bring in the satisfaction that they were hoping for and I just think it's such a core part of it and it just made sense for me to kind of like follow that rather than talking about it in a more kind of laboratorial sort of style. 
Have you ever done non-creative work or has this always been what you've stuck to? It's kind of always been what I've stuck to. You know, I came out of university and did the internships and managed to kind of force my way in and, and luckily was able to do something fairly creative straight away. Although at the same time, I would like to take a break from that at some point and do something that's more simple and, you know, involves just using your hands a little bit more. Interesting. So at the beginning of the show, you mentioned podcasts, which is what brought us together. Yeah. One of your most recent projects is a podcast about my favorite band, The National. Yes. So I want to hear from you. What made you decide to start Coffee and Flowers and what drew you to this project? I feel like I was very fortunate in that most people when, you know, people say, oh, what's your favorite band? Like they can't say anything, you know, because there's like, oh, is this, you know, there's four or five that are like really, really dear to me. But with The National, it's always just been a kind of, they've just always felt like an anchor to me and to a very good friend of mine as well. So over my kind of career, I ended up, you know, reviewing their albums and interviewing them. Um, and me and my friend kind of went out to their hometown and shadowed them for a few days last year. And then after that, we still, you know, we really, really enjoy talking about this band. Other people, the fandom seem to be so kind of passionate about them as well. What what is the next step? Um, and it just seemed like a podcast made total sense. And the band were really gracious about being part of that and helping us form this kind of documentary about them. But it's interesting, you know, and this, this all ties really ties back to what we've been talking about is that as much as I absolutely, you know, love the national and, and believe in their artistry, both in terms of music and, and lyrics, the podcast in a lot of ways is actually just about kind of mental health and, the national is almost like because their work is so evocative it often just ends up serving as like a jumping off point these stanzas and choruses for us to then have conversations about life and death and love and work and loneliness are there other bands that you've obviously nothing like the national but are there other bands that you've resonated with in a major way yeah for sure um I think everyone, because I do the, the national thing and do coffee and flowers, people assume that I'm a massive indie head, but um, actually a, like a big uh, rap fan. Um, so. Wow, I so would not expect you to say that. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, like, I have a really, really strong you know, connection to like Kendrick Lamar's work and, and, and Kanye West's as well. Um, yeah, and there are a lot of indie bands. Um, I love too. I love Kurt Vile. I love Warpaint. Oh, um, amazing. The National is definitely, there is something something special about that music. And it's so great the, having the response it has, because we were like, this is a really niche idea we're doing here, doing like an entire <laughs> season about one band. But There's so many people in the world who don't even know who the band is. And here are these two guys that are creating this podcast, breaking down every album, which yeah. is the greatest yeah. blessing in the world. But other people are like, who are The National? Yeah, but I don't know. We, we always say like, Aside from, you know, the big BTS and One Directions of the world that have these yeah. insane team full of these, the, <laughs> the National are the only other sort of band that have just like a really people, uh, if you like the National, you really fucking like the National, you know, there's like kind of no, no uh, midway point there. So the music means so much to so many people. So I think we were quietly confident that, you know, that there was like an appetite to go that deep about it. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we're here because I fell in love with your <laughs> podcast and I'm a huge fan of The National. Um, and so what else are you working on creatively? This year has been a big experiment for me. Like I I was kind of 
editing a culture desk at a newspaper last year in kind of a decent position, but I just decided to quit that kind of quite all of a sudden and just be freelance and just try and focus on some other projects. So I'm developing other podcasts and then I'm um, shooting a, a short film for Channel 4 this summer, which I uh, wrote and will be directing. So it's going to be exciting too. So it's just kind of trying to, as, as is the way, just trying to hop from project to project and, and try and hopefully still be able to eat a hot meal at the end of the day. I hope so too. And I hope that you make your way to New York one of these days, hopefully for a show that we can attend together. Yeah, me too. We're still, we, you know, we, we're conscious of the fact that the podcast means a lot to people as well, also in terms of these kind of these mental health issues we've been talking about. And as great as a podcast is connecting to someone and, and as nice as it is, you know, having this feeling of like it's someone inside your head, we're like, it would be weird for us not to actually reach out to these people and try and be in the same room as them. So we do at some point want to get some kind of a, a live event going where we can actually, you know, drink a beer with everyone who's been listening to us and kind of get to know people. I love that. I'm in, obviously. <laughs> I have several friends who would gladly join. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me truly and sort of share your experience and the ups and downs of living with depression, but realizing, you know, what works for you, what doesn't work for you and having to follow, you know, this creative outlet that clearly is a huge part of who you are. Yeah. Where can people learn more about you, your work and obviously Coffee and Flowers? Yeah, no, thank you for doing it. Like, I think it's such an important area and I'm so glad you're exploring it and and so many different facets to it. And yeah, I think I probably, (laughs) I've kind of spoken about a lot of areas that of things that like not working, but I suppose I should say that creativity as well as being informed by depression is something that definitely has helped with it. And I think a lot of the time dealing with depression is about clearing away those thoughts and just trying to be engaged with something. And I never feel if I'm on a set or I'm in the middle of a podcast, like I'm not thinking about anything else. I'm just completely absorbed by what I'm doing. And that is something that definitely, definitely does treat, you know, the shitty thoughts in your head. So um, I would implore anyone who, because, you know, sometimes people don't have the confidence to go and to try and like follow their creativity, but whatever, whether it's painting or whatever it is, I would definitely recommend just as much as, as therapy and trying medication and stuff to really just go out there and create. I appreciate you saying that because I think there's plenty of people out there that probably have nine to five desk jobs and are miserable and have depression mm. and don't really know what outlet to use and whether it is, you know, the angles that you've taken creatively or to your point, painting, drawing, you know, dance, music, whatever it may be to find that thing that works for you because there's so many different ways to be creative and get in your zone. Yeah. And it's exciting, you know, and if, if it gathers pace, it, it, you know, it helps you feel better during those, those nine to five hours because you're thinking like, all right, like you're kind of somewhat there checked out, but you're thinking, but when I, when I get out of this, when, you know, 5 p.m. comes, I'm going to continue working on this thing and maybe it's not going to be a masterpiece. Maybe I won't even show it to anyone, but it's a thing that is in the works and I'm excited to go and continue working on it. You know, that's a good thing. Absolutely. All right. So where can people learn more about you and your work and obviously the podcast? Yeah. So um, I try not to tweet as much as possible because I think Twitter is just an absolute hellhole, frankly. So um, I'm mostly an Instagram kind of person so they can find me on there. And uh, same goes for the for the podcast, really. And uh, Coffee and Flowers is on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and all the various apps. So hopefully it'll be 
easy enough to find if people are interested to check it out. Awesome. And we'll be sure to include all those links in the show notes so everyone can access them easily. And thank you again, Christopher. So appreciate you taking the time. Cool. No, thank you, Harper. It was really, uh, yeah, really good to talk to you. Thanks for tuning into Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com. Follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor. Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer. Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music. And Krista Gray for the logo and design concepts.